If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1651, the frontier town of Springfield, Massachusetts, was plagued by a series of strange occurrences. Steamed pudding split, livestock became ill, and the villagers began to experience terrifying visions and dreams. Soon, rumours spread, blaming these misfortunes on witchcraft. Malcolm Gaskell tells the story of what happened that year at Springfield in his book, The Ruin of All Witches, and I spoke to him to find out more. Your book relates a 1651 case of witchcraft in Springfield, Massachusetts. Can you set the scene for us and introduce us to the story that you're looking at here? Right. So this is a a frontier settlement, a colonial settlement with uh, English and Welsh settlers in the middle of the 17th century who've gone to this uh, new world looking for new lives for themselves. And, of course, they find themselves full of hope, but in the end, very far from home. They are rather isolated, and they're at the mercy of the weather and disease, predators, uh, Native Americans. But what they discover in the end is that they're, you know, the worst thing they're up against is one another. And this is also a kind of, a, I suppose, a, a terrifying supernatural world as well as a, a hostile physical world, um, which is full of demons and spirits and witches, and not a kind of remote witch over the hill, you know, a sort of a crone that nobody, you know, people only ever glimpse, but actually, you know, an enemy within the person next door. So it's a very kind of 
challenging world and also rather a frightening world. And uh, as a lot of colonists find, they have to work extremely hard in order to establish themselves. But there's something about Springfield which is different from other um, New England settlements because people are particularly nasty in their ambitions, I think, and particularly envious and grasping and the rest of it. Well, that was something I was going to ask you about, because obviously you're an expert in witchcraft. You've seen loads of these cases. But what was it about the Springfield case that made you think it was worthy of devoting a whole book to? Was it because it, it was particularly nasty, particularly unusual, or other threads that you know could be applied elsewhere? One of the things that historians of witchcraft are always looking for is the, uh, the the physical context, the social context from which the accusations arise. So sometimes I think that, you know, everybody knows something about witchcraft and witch hunting, but people sometimes think that these accusations kind of come out of thin air whenever somebody can't explain some misfortune that befalls them. But really what happens with most witchcraft accusations is they take an awful long time festering away in the background until finally, you know, it sort of breaks out and um, and that somebody gets accused. So the thing about Springfield is that it's very well described in the records. We have very fine-grained, uh, uh, rich colonial records, particularly about this witchcraft trial, because there are pages and pages of original depositions that tell us an awful lot, not just about the beliefs and the particular accusations that people make, but about their you know, their material world as well. You know, we're always reading against the grain with these kind of records, and they don't intend to tell us about the unusual way in which they lived in this frontier world. But of course, that's there in the background. And you do see, as a historian, the way in which you can connect these particular fears that they're having in 1649, 1650, early 1651, uh, with their material circumstances. So can you take us back to Springfield, at the time of this case, who were some of the central figures that were involved? Right, so Springfield is founded in the mid-1630s by this extraordinary man called William Pynchon. Now, he starts out as rather an obscure country church warden in Essex, uh, but he's clever, he's an amateur theologian, and he's also extremely ambitious. And partly for religious reasons, but also for economic reasons, he goes to New England and he starts fur trading uh, on the East Coast. But he realises that he needs to get to the source of where the beaver fur, beaver pelts are to be uh, found, and that's at the top of the Connecticut River. So he relocates, as some East Coast settlers are starting to do by this time. Uh, towards the Connecticut Valley. And so he's really in the kind of on the western frontier of New England. And that's where he forms a small community on the Connecticut River, which gradually grows, but not too fast because he doesn't want the community to outstrip its resources. So that for most of this story, we are looking at about 40-odd households, about 100 or so people, that kind of size, we don't know exactly, but it's of those kind of proportions, that are all, um, these are all households which are arranged down a small length of the Connecticut River, and they have planting grounds over the river and woodlots to the other side. And there they form this relatively self-sufficient little world for themselves. And when did inklings of something possibly supernatural start to emerge in Springfield? 
Well, one of the things about the settlers is that whatever they think they're leaving behind them, they take their own beliefs and their own emotions, their own hopes and fears and anxieties with them. Now, part of this, of course, is the belief in witchcraft, the belief in God's providence, the belief in demons, the belief in ghosts, all those things that they had with them in the old world. There's no reason to suppose that they would have jettisoned those things as they crossed the Atlantic. But these things don't necessarily automatically surface. They are latent for quite a long time, as they are in other places in New England. And so that even you see, if, if you see glimpses of their beliefs, you don't get a great rash of witchcraft accusations as soon as people arrive in a New England. It takes time. And so that around the time that you see an explosion of witchcraft accusations in England, particularly in the eastern counties of England, where not entirely coincidentally, quite a lot of the New England Puritan settlers have come from themselves. But about the time that you start getting a witch hunt in the eastern counties during the English Civil War, you start to see accusations and trials from around 1647 just starting to spring up in different parts of New England, including the Connecticut Valley, almost like this is a sort of creeping contagions going up the Connecticut Valley, and uh, almost inevitably one day will reach Springfield, as indeed it does. Two of the central figures of this case um, were a couple called Hugh and Mary Parsons. Can you tell us about them and why you think that they might have attracted the community's ire in the way that they did? Yeah, so... They, in the south part of Springfield, it's quite a long, snaking uh, settlement. But in the south end, by the mid-1640s, this is where most newcomers appear to be settling. And Mary Parsons, or she's Mary Lewis as she, when she arrives there, she is a woman probably in her early to mid-30s. And she has come from Wales. She's had a very unhappy background there where she's actually been married. Uh, it turns out to a Catholic and he bullies her, and she becomes she more distanced from him and actually joins a, um, a kind of a breakaway Protestant sect. So she's kind of very uh, spiritually and emotionally well-disposed to settling in Puritan New England, and she goes there around 1640. But she's looking for a new husband. Her old marriage is it turns out, in effect, dissolved because he's deserted her for so long. And so she's really eligible again. And then in 1645, when William Pynchon uh, feels that he needs a brickmaker for the town and hires a man called Hugh Parsons, well, you know, this is, I wouldn't say a marriage made in heaven, far from it, but they certainly are suited to one, one another in the autumn of 1645 and that they like so many other settlers, they marry and once, uh, you know, once they are married, start trying to establish a household for themselves. What were some of the accusations that people levelled against the Parsons? Well, one of the things about settling the community like this is you've really got to get on with your neighbours. And it's this is a lot more than just, you know, being nice. You're very, very dependent on those people around you, economically, spiritually and, and, and the rest of it. This is often a quite rather a barter economy. You borrow things, you lend things, and that means you've got to be, have good relations with those around you. Uh, and that Mary and, and Hugh, without giving too much away or going to too much detail, get it all catastrophically wrong. And uh, Mary is probably not very well, I think. And she seems rather deluded and rather suspicious and paranoid, I think. And so that rather worries her neighbours. I think it's it's very interesting that she becomes very 
panicked about witches in a way that doesn't spread panic automatically amongst her, particularly female neighbours. They think it's very strange that she should be so worried. Meanwhile, her husband, who everybody's trying to do brick deals with, is just the most difficult person to work with that anybody's ever done. And this is this is not a community where people particularly um, are particularly nice or polite to each other, I think. But he really stands out as extremely difficult. And whenever he doesn't quite get his way or he imagines that somebody, you know, slights him, uh, he threatens to get even with them. Now, this really means that I think when things start to go wrong, you know, it's he's in the frame as somebody, some for somebody to accuse him of witchcraft. The misfortunes that people suffer in in Springfield range from children becoming sick and uh, and dying, um, and demons supposedly arriving in the night and tormenting people, right down to very mundane things, such as um, uh, one family. They, they they try to steam a pudding and it keeps splitting. Uh, one man finds his trowel disappears. Another man finds that his knife disappears and then it reappears. Another man falls off his horse. Now, but the thing about these m- things that might strike us as so mundane is that in this um, very uh, economically straightened community, that when things like that do go wrong, it really feels like someone else might be trying to disturb the delicate balance of your own household and your life. So they might actually, in context, be less mundane than they might appear to us, because these are really, by our standards, very poor people. Um, and so a split pudding might be rather a you know disastrous thing if all your you know your your resources for that day have gone into that pudding. And it seems in this story there's another level to that. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to go on excessively about the steam pudding, but there's another part of it where the, the, the woman who makes it for her husband probably feels embarrassed that she can't provide a proper meal for her husband. Men and women have to measure up in the community and to one another, and so that one of the roles of a woman is to put food on the table. So if she keeps getting it wrong, it looks perhaps like someone is making, not just making her look foolish, but actually trying to drive a wedge between her and her husband, even if it's over something like her cooking. And so the patterns that you've described there of, you know, everything from the mundane things going wrong in life to to big misfortunes being blamed, perhaps on an evil insider. Do you see that pattern as something that's quite typical of uh, New England witch cases or witch cases in early America? It is actually very typical. In fact, it's very typical of English witchcraft cases as well, and actually of of many other cases in parts of Europe, where you quite often find that the authorities, particularly clergy and magistrates, are rather emphasising the need to find the evidence of the demonic pact. They're defining witchcraft very much as the crime of diabolism. Now, although ordinary people understand that, for them, what makes them go to law is when they suspect the witches are trying to harm them, threatening their children, threatening their livelihood. All those things, all those anxieties about the about near subsistence level of early modern life are all things where somebody might actually feel that a witch was trying to get at them. So that the the the, the definition of witchcraft as a crime is really rather a hybrid between the maleficium, the causing of harm, and this 
this this crime which is closer, I suppose, to heresy, although it's not quite heresy, but it's the, it's a religious crime of 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 apostasy, I suppose would be a better way of putting it, of actually giving up, renouncing your faith in Christ and pledging your allegiance to Satan. I'm intrigued by this difference you spoke of there between attitudes of authorities and the attitudes of the ordinary people. And how did authorities respond to this case in the Springfield case? Well, William Pynchon, as chief landlord, chief magistrate, chief everything, tries to play it by the book. Um, he doesn't want to antagonise his Boston superiors. Uh, he's a cautious man. So his authority really only extends to the gathering of evidence, as it does for English magistrates as well. So this image that we sometimes have of angry mobs chasing witches up to the gallows and so on, it's, it, it, it's very, very rarely is that the case. They have to go through the correct procedures so that William Pynchon has to gather evidence that's that's the the main uh, documentary source that we have as historians he takes down all their complaints of the, the complaints of the neighbors record of the Q&A with uh, the interrogatory with Hugh Parsons and then this evidence is then sent forward to the more the higher courts uh, in Boston where they will actually have a trial which is very like going to the English assizes magistrates collect evidence and then the, uh, the the prisoner is sent with the evidence off to off for their trial. Do you think that that's a big misconception about witch trials in this period? That people think of, as you say, um, pitchforks and burning mm. torches, whereas actually there was a lot more thought, reflection, and consideration put into these mm. cases. Well, yeah, it's very difficult because we look back to the history of the witch, the period of the witch trials through a prism of intolerance and superstition and irrational behavior and 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 fury and and all these things and and there are, you know and none of that's completely untrue but uh the the belief in witchcraft is a much more finely balanced thing than i think that a lot of people assume um and that really means that People aren't uh, obsessed with witches. They're not. They don't blame everything on witches. They're not always attacking witches. Witches are not constant daily scapegoats for every misfortune in daily life. You can have a general background belief in witchcraft. You know, do you believe in witches? Yes, of course, everybody believes in witches. Uh, do you know of any witches? I can't think of any, or somebody somebody once said that she was a witch, but there's no evidence for it. And that's so. There are two different levels there between the theoretical belief in witch and witches and the practical belief. And it's the practical belief that's so difficult. So even if the the theoretical belief is universal, actually practically finding the evidence to convict somebody in a court of law and you know take their life away. Uh, is a much, much more difficult thing. And that's why we generally see very high rates of acquittal. I'm really intrigued by that thing you just said about people not being obsessed by witches all the time. Do you think that then a witch trial emerging in a community, especially a frontier community, a colonial community, is yeah. evidence of that community failing or some kind of breakdown in the way that things were working socially? Uh, yeah, I, I think that it, it is a sign of something going wrong or at the very least it's a sign of something changing 
So that in um, in England, one of the causal factors for the rise of witchcraft accusations is economic change. And that means that there are um, communities are more economically polarised than they have been in previous generations. That puts a lot of pressure on communities. It puts pressure on a charity and attitudes towards the poor. And then it, the emotions of guilt are created and resentment. And you see this in England, let's say, from the, the last decades of the 16th century into the first half of the 17th century. And it's incredibly important for how this general belief in witchcraft uh, is converted into something where people actually make accusations. So that in uh, in Springfield has been going for you know fifteen years by the time that, uh, that the, the there are these suspicions and accusations of witchcraft. Uh, but I think it's really a measure of the fact that Springfield is economically changing itself and is becoming a much more I mean, this is rather a historical term, but it's becoming more of a capitalist community, and that the the characteristics of the people are very far removed from the rather more well, I wouldn't say gentle, but the more communitarian ideals of some godly communities, some godly um, uh, settlements and colonies, which are formed on the in and around Boston on the East Coast. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so that the neighbours are frightened of them. They don't, they, they, they hate Hugh Parsons for sure, but they're also scared of him. And that's again something which I think we can easily lose from our sense of witchcraft, the, the history of witchcraft, is really how afraid people were of those that they believed to be witches. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. You say in the book that witchcraft is not some wild superstition, but a serious expression of disorder. What do you mean by that? Are you referring to that transition um, you just spoke about? 
Well, historians of witchcraft are always trying to get people to stop using the word superstition. Any you ask any historian of witchcraft, and they're very um, they're very sensitive to it. But of course, you know, in popular parlance, we superstition and witchcraft really uh, really go together. So um, the thing about superstition is that it, um, it, it it's associated with error and it's associated with a kind of aberration of rational thinking. And so that what really I was trying to do in the book is to get away from this idea that that everyone's just gone mad or this is a mad world because it exists before the Enlightenment. Uh, before the age of reason. Witchcraft is part of the way in which people think, which, again, isn't the same as saying that they're going on about witches all the time, but witchcraft belongs to a uh, a mental world, a universe uh, of thinking, which contains God and providence and angels and spirits and all those things. And in fact, much later on, when there's more scepticism, about witchcraft. Some of the defenders of the belief in witchcraft defend it precisely because they don't want this whole thing to collapse. They feel that if you start attacking the idea of witchcraft, then maybe you're promoting atheism. Um, so, you know, no devil, no God. That's that kind of idea. So the, it's a serious belief in this world. It just doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's acting on it constantly, all the time. So there's a great deal of uncertainty, even a great deal of scepticism about whether an individual who's on trial for their life really is a witch. So the book, as you mentioned, is trying to find logic in a situation that has often, as you say, been dismissed as superstition or hysteria and craziness. One of the things that I think is often hardest to explain in cases like this are visions or sightings or dreams that people have and their their strong belief that they have seen something supernatural. Could you give some examples of that in the Springfield case and how you might go about unpicking that or explaining it? One of the things that happens in Springfield is that uh, people are trying to present evidence of their own experience of the supernatural, which are out of the ordinary. And so, of course, people have dreams. People dream of the devil. People dream of angel and of God and all sorts of things. It doesn't have to mean anything. Um, they understand about dreams. They know that dreams don't have to mean anything at all. But in this context of fear and suspicion that some of these rather terrifying dreams, Hugh Parsons himself believes that he's being tormented by devils, uh, demons in the night. That's So his dream experience is something which isn't just a dream. It really feels that there's something porous about himself and that demons are getting in, that he's vulnerable to invasion by demons. Uh, others see hallucinations of Hugh. They think that Hugh projects himself and he becomes a kind of living ghost that comes to torment them. So you're getting a kind of a range of supernatural experiences of demons tormenting people, demons coming in dreams, uh, visions um, and, and apparitions coming to people's houses, standing by their beds, all, all these kinds of things. And historically, um, I think we have to take them at face value. And that's what the book does. The book doesn't seek to explain anything away by saying, oh, well, this was because of... You know, somebody was suffering from psychosis, even though that's almost certainly what we would think today. I think that people are um, 
you, you know that they they describe their experiences, and that I think what is what we have to capture historically. So they say what happens, and it's I think it's not just respectful to them to to take their experiences seriously, but I think it really helps us to understand the ways in which these. Um, uh, these rather dramatic experiences give them the, the kind of conviction they need, the kind of uh, confidence they need to, to go forward with an accusation. And so that what is quite often missing from a lot of uh, understanding of witchcraft are these emotions of sheer terror, sheer blind terror, where the, that dream, which you might shrug off otherwise, actually becomes a very terrifying and meaningful experience of the supernatural, where um, what, what, an, an experience of the supernatural where you're not just witnessing it, you, it, you are the target. And that is something which I think is very hard to shrug off the next day. Uh, you carry that fear with you. I'm interested by the approach of the book because you could call it a micro-history. What you're doing is you're telling the story of one small community over a couple of years. And I was wondering if you think that that sheds light on any of these themes or um, perhaps causal factors in a way that you might not get from looking at a much broader history of witchcraft in New England, for example? Uh, yeah. Well, I do think that... Um, it- to really understand um, the way the mechanics of witchcraft accusations, you need to be able to look deeply into one case as well as broadly across many cases. When you look across many cases, what you find is there's actually a lot of variety of circumstances surrounding a witchcraft accusation and actually quite a variety of types of people involved and a variety of outcomes. When you look really deeply into a case, you really start to understand how an accusation, how a suspicion evolves into an accusation and an accusation evolves into a prosecution over a much longer period of time. And I think that's incredibly important to get a sense of that time because part of the misconception about witchcraft is that it is a sort of a something, you know, snaps in somebody's head and then the next thing you know, you know, an old woman's been dragged off for trial to kind of make people feel better or just because they didn't like her. I think that historians of witchcraft really understand that image of witchcraft, but really try to move away from it. So the, the, the thing about the Springfield case is you really get to know the people, you really see who they are, you see what their relationships are, and that gives you this much um, more thickly described. Historians sometimes talk about thick description. And um, and the thing about thick descriptions, you get that kind of, um, that real depth to personalities and relationships. And witchcraft accusations aren't just about superstition, perhaps not about superstition at all, but they're always about toxic relationships. They're always about things going wrong. And in this is a story where things go wrong between neighbours, there are tensions between authority and those that they govern, and in this particular, there's a tension between husband and wife too. So everybody's really at each other's throats, and I think it's that that really gives us, uh, at this particular moment in time, that gives you that sense of why there's an accusation or witch trial then, and maybe not before, and not quite to the same extent afterwards, although Springfield does have uh, witch trials later on. I wonder if you could just give us a little bit more information on some of the specifics of the Springfield case, particularly, as you say, um, specifics of personality that were at play here and of those toxic relationships you just mentioned. 
Well, the thing about um, Hugh and Mary Parsons, who are at the the centre of the story, is that they have to get on with their neighbours, but they fail. Uh, They have to measure up as neighbours, they have to measure up, Hugh has to measure up as a man, and that has a lot of complicated baggage with it, and Mary has to measure up as a woman, and as a wife, and as a mother, and it seems that they fail in all those categories, and I think it's that that really um, puts them at odds with their neighbours. Um, But it takes time. I mean, initially, I think people are rather sympathetic towards Mary and that they see her as somebody who is um, rather abused by her husband. And that's really not on in this early modern world. The ideal household must be one where the husband and wife behave properly towards one another. Um, the, The household where the man, for example, needs to beat his wife is a household that's failing. That's not acceptable, even though this is a patriarchal society. Um, But that means that men should be able to govern their wives and their communities by consent, and if not, they are weak. So that I think it's this sense of Hugh Parsons' weakness in the eyes of his neighbours, who are very judgmental, and they are rather, uh, you know, I wouldn't brutal, I think, quite a lot of the time, but that you can get by if you play the game, and he really doesn't. So that he's always having these arguments over his brick deals and saying, I will be even with you. Well, you know, in other circumstances, that might just seem like an idle threat, but because things start to go wrong, and because his wife seems so obsessed with witches, then I think that this creates a different set of circumstances that mean that it's mean that the idea that Hugh Parsons might be a witch becomes plausible in a way that maybe in other circumstances and previously it wasn't plausible. So the, the, the plausible witchcraft accusation arises from a certain atmosphere that settles over a set of relationships and economic and material circumstances. It's a kind of perfect storm. And I think that that's what you get at Springfield right at this time, this perfect storm of factors. And so that the neighbours are frightened of them. They don't. They, they they hate Hugh Parsons for sure, but they're also scared of him. And that's again something which I think we can easily lose from our sense of witchcraft. The, the history of witchcraft is really how afraid people were of those that they believed to be witches. Something I did want to ask you about was the way in which the book is written. So it's incredibly evocative and you describe the way it's written as a historical reconstruction. What was the process of going from these sources that you say you've you had a lot of depth from, but basically creating a world and creating a story out of those sources without, you know, moving too far away from what we know from the historical record? All good history, I think, requires a degree of imagination that should stop short of fiction. So I would describe the process by which the book is written as fictive in the sense that it borrows some of the narrative strategies that novelists might use, um, but it doesn't invent things. And what it also does, and I've done this in um, previous books of mine, is that you know if you want to describe a situation plausibly, truthfully, I think is the word I would use, then sometimes you can triangulate with other sources that will give you a sense of what definitely would have been happening in that sort of situation. So, for example, I know 
you know, quite a lot about early modern brickmaking, and Hugh Parsons is a brickmaker. There's nothing really about his brick, the, the, the making of bricks, that is described in the Springfield record. But you know how 17th century bricks were made, so you can put the two together. That's something that the historian Natalie Zeman Davis talks about, which is informed imagination. So again, it's not um, just, it's not fantastical. I don't, it's not my wild imagination, but it's an imagination which is informed by very close, deep and long reading uh, into other sources. So there's an awful lot of primary sources and secondary sources that go into this book that aren't about Springfield, but they are about mid-17th century New England. Why did you want to take that approach for this book? Um, I think it's really important to see how an accusation of witchcraft arises from their material world. So you do really need to understand how they eat and how they work and how they earn money, or actually there isn't very much money, but they have a kind of barter economy, um, the relationship they have with William Pynchon and the rest of it. I think you need to know everything about this world in order to see how this belief in it, this rather unusual thing, a witch trial, arises from their world at the time that it does. Because I think if witchcraft accusations were absolutely endemic and they went on all the time, constantly, constantly throughout early modern communities until the Enlightenment put an end to it, um, then the material circumstances would be less important. But because they're kind of unusual, you need to see what factors come together at that time. And so there must be something particularly bad happening in this place and at this time uh, for those accusations to come out into the open. And as I say, for everyone around to think that it's plausible, that's the key word, I think. In, in make, it makes the difference between an accusation going forward and it just withering on the vine. If you said to most people, name a New England witch trial beginning with S, their answer would not be Springfield, it would be Salem. Of course. But how well remembered is the Springfield case today? Um, for example, especially in Springfield itself. Uh, and I know you visited. So. Well, yeah, I've been a couple of times. Um, outside the archive, uh, where they, they know about it, obviously, and there is a very nice, very good library and archive in Springfield, uh, not very well known at all. Um, there are a couple of statues to... Puritan founders, early colonists in Springfield, but nothing to the witch trial itself. Um, so I think really not very well known at all. Salem obviously is very well known, particularly because of Arthur Miller's play The Crucible, and the way it just captured the imagination, the popular cultural imagination about, uh, you know, and it really stood in for and has continues to stand in for witch hunting, the witch craze. So it is a precursor. It doesn't have. It isn't quite as catastrophic as what happens at Salem, Massachusetts, but it does prefigure it. I'm intrigued by the the source material that you've worked with here. What were some of the most eye opening aspects of that source material, or perhaps whether you found anything that surprised you in that? Yeah, I suppose one of the things which is most surprising when you start looking at this New England material, and this is true actually of, uh, of stuff that isn't related to uh, to witchcraft or the supernatural, is just how like English communities these places are. There's an old-fashioned strand of American exceptionalist history that almost presupposes that when these English colonists arrive in America, something magical happens to them and they change into proto-Americans and they all get on with each other and they're all Puritans and so on. Well, it's very far from that. They 
tried to do what, in retrospect, seems obvious. They tried to recreate an English world for themselves because that's what they know and that's where they feel comfortable. And so in Springfield, William Pynchon is trying to attract all these trades, uh, you know, carpenters and brickmakers and uh, coopers and bootmakers and tailors and everything to this world because that's the kind of range of trades that people have been used to. And the more of that you have, the more comfortable you are and the more you can attract more people to come and settle there. What is surprising is actually that familiarity, that similarity. And actually also the way in which witchcraft accusations play out is also very similar. Um, there is greater emphasis in these New England trials uh, placed upon the, the the diabolic and the demonic, on the, the forming of a covenant with Satan. But they have exactly the same problems that the English courts have, is that this is very difficult to prove because you just don't have the material evidence because witchcraft is a crime of darkness and the devil conceals the evidence. And so that juries in New England, as in Old England, are often very unsure about whether that they can convict with any kind of confidence. I'm just thinking about the way in which we look back on this case today and whether there are any modern echoes of this case that we might recognise. Well, I think there's lots about the um, uh, the intolerance towards neighbours and the um, these rather hostile emotions of uh, of suspicion and of cruelty, I think, that these are things we haven't left behind and, and they do resonate through the ages. I suppose in just in very recent times, in the last couple of years, that there have been things about the pandemic which I think have... Uh, uh, surfaced in the book. I think I felt there were points when I was writing the book where I felt, you know, we were sort of locked down and we were, you know, we felt kind of remote and isolated and there were, we weren't quite sure about whether to trust information and there was a certain amount of, you know, sort of conspiracy theories going on and paranoia and all these things. This is very much the world of Springfield, uh, a world of contagion, I suppose. There was a lot of um, contagious disease there and that heightened anxiety. So I think that there are things, there are, although our world changes and of course our mentalities change, but inevitably there are things about our emotional lives where we're still very vulnerable to a world of of hostility between neighbours and between those around us that, um, you know, really hasn't gone away and we can easily, I think, slip back into if we're not careful. If you want to know what happened to the Springfield Villagers and Hugh and Mary Parsons, then make sure that you check out Malcolm's book, The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World. That's out now, published by Alan Lane, and you can find a link in the show notes. And if you're interested in the history of witchcraft, then why not check out our podcast series, where we take an in-depth look at why the Salem witch trials happened. You can find that at historyextra.com slash salempodcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.